0: Well, Merry Christmas and welcome to worship this morning. We are in the middle of the Advent season. We're delighted that you're here. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. We get to gather together to uh, celebrate, commemorate, contemplate. I'm so glad that you're all here to festivate. It's my anniversary, people. what I'm talking about. Yay. All right. We're going to pray and go home. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It is a miracle just short of the incarnation of Christ that I am actually still in matrimonial bliss. So, those two things are slightly related. Happy anniversary to my bride. And uh, welcome to worship in the Advent season here at Bethel. My name is Eric Barton. And along with Josh and Mike, I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel downtown, serving alongside with Ashley and Lauren and Mark and the rest of all of our ministry leaders, working really hard and somewhat frantically, to make sure to provide hospitality to our community. This afternoon and for the early part of the evening, we'll be having Christmas on Elm. We've already talked about it a good bit, but we want to continue to encourage you, to remind you to plan on joining us this afternoon downstairs in the first floor and also outside and on Elm Street. We're having the street closed off. So we're inviting the community to come and see who we are and whose we are. One of the refrains that we pray is that God would do for others what he has done for us. So one of the ways we do that is by bringing people in that know and love and trust us and have them do life with us among other people that we know and love and trust. So this is one of those great opportunities to bring someone in a non-threatening, non-intrusive sort of environment in which there will be different opportunities for the gospel to be given, for the season to be made much of, well, Speaking of the season, we are in our Advent season. We've been walking through the genealogy of Jesus, as some of you uh, who had already come in by then and heard the, the genealogy of Jesus set to song. Our sermon series for this Advent season deals with the five women that are listed in Scripture as the lineage of King Jesus and why that is. I wanna read this to you again so that it'll sort of springboard and launch us into what we wanna discuss this morning. So this comes from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The whole world wants for God to do something better. I don't know if you've thought about that. Believer, non-believer, atheist, theist, deist. The whole world wants for there to be better. Matthew's opening statement is that he has. In fact, he's done the ultimate because in half of human history transpires, God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to promise you, I will provide land, physical, material, geographical space on the earth in which there is human flourishing. I will provide offspring, progeny, generations of recipients of my blessing, and I will provide the aforementioned blessing. I will do it, Abram, and the one that will accomplish it, that will execute it, that will do it, is the king. From the line of David. And so the very first sentence of our New Testament is is Matthew proclaiming the goodness of our God as he gives the gospel. The thing we want, need, desire most has been done. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We looked at her two weeks ago in Genesis chapter 38. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab, Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. We'll be looking at Ruth today. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Again, it's a bit of a surprise that all of these women are Gentiles, We would expect the great grand matriarchs of Israel, of Sarah, the the wife of Abram, of Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, or Rachel, the apple of Jacob's eye, or Leah, his faithful wife, for the rest of her life. But no, we're given two Canaanites, a Moabite, and a Hittite as the mothers of Jesus. Well, why is that? Because Matthew is telling us something great, glorious, and grand. All of these Gentile women who were outside, who have no shot at the Messiah of Israel, are brought in. And each one of these Jewish women, or sorry, these Gentile women, cling to a Jewish man as the hope of their eternity. Sounds an awful lot like the church. All of these Gentiles cling to the hopes of a Jewish man who will be in different manifestations through these different stories of the genealogy of Jesus. In the story of uh, Tamar, we see that Jesus provides Messiah, the forgiveness of sin, the presence of God on earth, that he is the one who takes away the sin of the world, the presence of the person of God in the world. Through the story of Rahab, We see that God will send a conqueror, one who will come from the east, who will eradicate and obliterate all unrighteousness, wickedness, sin, evil, and death. He will set the world to rights, and that's very good news. This morning, we're gonna look at the story of Ruth, and we'll see about a redeemer, one who pays a costly price to buy us out of our hopeless circumstances, to give us dignity, means, purpose, value, and wealth. Next week, we'll look at the story of Bathsheba and how God will provide a king, the one who will rule in a realm that is itself righteousness. And then on Christmas Eve morning, we'll gather, we'll look at the story of Mary, the one Jewish girl in the genealogy of Jesus as Matthew provides it. All of this is to show surprising grace. Really, the story of our Bible all the way from Genesis through Revelation, is the story of grace. And Christmas is that exclamation point where we get to pause and not just have the pageantry of man where there are snowmen and reindeer and Christmas lights and fun songs, but the promise of God made manifest. That's what we get to do, what we must do at Christmas. It might feel nicer to have a Charlie Brown Christmas, or it might feel nicer to see nice pretty garland wreaths on gas lamps and to sing World War II era songs. But if all we have is the pageantry of men and we miss the promise of God, we've missed the glory of Advent. That's what our big idea for this entire Advent series has been. Sin is no match for God's grace. And I have to believe as I've been praying, planning, preparing for this week, that somebody yet again in this room, either this hour or the previous hour, needs to hear that and that the moral of all of these stories is that good morals don't save a single human soul. We tend to focus so much on trying to massage and manipulate all the morality around us, and perhaps that's important, but it doesn't save a single human soul, and in fact, immorality does not disqualify us from receiving and believing the gospel. It is God's surprising grace that saves. And so with all of that as a run-up, let me invite you to turn to the book of Ruth, Joshua Judges Ruth. Now we're going to do the book of Ruth a little bit differently. For Tamar, we just studied Genesis 38. For Rahab, we just looked at Joshua chapter 2. But for the book of Ruth, we have to take it as an entire chunk. That's right, I'm going to preach this sort of master sweep, very quick, efficient, masterstroke of the book of Ruth, all four chapters, because you have to understand what's going on in the book of Ruth to understand why Matthew includes it in the genealogy. For starters, sometimes at Bethel, you know that we like to give a context of, hey, this is what's going on in biblical history, or hey, this is what was going on in Corinth when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, those kinds of things. This time, I need to let you know of an internal context. We started off with Tamar. They haven't even gone down to Egypt yet, the people of Israel. they are still a family waiting to go down into Egypt. And by the time we get to Rahab, they've come up out of Egypt after 400 years, and they're about to cross into the land of Canaan. They're going to take the place, the conquest that God has his land prepared for them. But now we're going to go through the period and the time of the judges, and things go from bad to worse to awful. There is darkness, there is depravity, there is death. Things have deteriorated rapidly throughout the period of the Judges. The last judge we read of in the book of Judges is a guy named Samson. Perhaps you've heard of him. Always depicted as though he's absolutely, utterly swole and does core workouts 20 hours a day. No, Samson was probably a pipsqueak. That's why the Philistines keep going, how are you so strong again? You look like a pipe cleaner with ears. We don't understand. Why are you so strong? He's the final judge. Now, Samuel technically is also a judge, but at the end of the book of Judges, you have the concluding two stories and they go marvelously as follows. In Judges 17 and 18, we're introduced to a guy named Jonathan. Oh, you think Jonathan, that's a good name. This guy's probably a good guy. Well, Jonathan has a dad whose name is Gershom. Gershom has a guy who has a dad whose name is Moses. Perhaps you've heard of him. So by the end of the book of Judges, we have a guy named Jonathan, whose grandfather is Moses. And Jonathan's a bad dude. Not bad dude like Clint Eastwood, bad dude. Like bad dude like, oh, no. He's completely outside of the pattern of worship of Yahweh. He is a priest. But instead of doing worship the way God wants it done, Jonathan and a buddy named Micah, they travel way, way, way up into the north in a place called Laish, It's in the tribal lands of Dan. It's near the border of Lebanon today. And they erect an altar, and they build another temple, and they begin to practice idolatrous worship, mixing in some Yahwism, some worship of true God, along with worship of pagan gods at this pagan altar way up in there. They leave Bethlehem, and they go north. Now, that's Bethlehem story number one. The next story in Judges makes up Bethlehem story number two. Two, what you've got is a traveling businessman shows up in Bethlehem and he's traveling with his concubine. Now, concubine's not necessarily what you think. It's not that she was a prostitute. This is sort of a business relationship. He would provide to her resources and protection. She would provide to him offspring. It's just how the ancient world worked. He shows up in Bethlehem where some really horrible, heinous things happen to her. She's taken by the men of Bethlehem. She's used, abused, beaten, taken advantage of in a very cruel way. And ultimately, she is killed. Well, this man does what any of you would have done, I'm sure. He cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her all over Israel. That escalated quickly. (laughs) He calls all the rest of Israel to war who come and slaughter, annihilate, and obliterate the tribe of Benjamin for this atrocity that they have committed. And so all of Israel musters, and they come, and they fight against the Benjamites, who were fierce folks, and they almost wipe them out completely. (sighs) This is the first two stories of what we call the Bethlehem Trilogy. Now, you kind of have to know that. In Hebrew literature, 100% of the time, if you have a story about a place, it will go from bad to awful to absolute uh, uh, horrific. Or you might have a story that starts good, it'll have the next part of the story will be better, and then the final part of the story will be absolute paradise. But you will never, never, ever have a story that starts bad, goes worse, and then is okay. Never, not once, ever, other time in Hebrew literature. And so, into your Bible, a Hebrew reader would know, ah, Joshua, the conquest, judges, the darkness, Ruth. Ooh, but judges ends with Bethlehem, story one. Bethlehem, story two. Oh, and then the book ends. What's going to happen with Bethlehem story three? Ruth chapter one. Ruth chapter one. Now we're going to walk all through this. We're going to treat these chapters like scenes in a play because they really are marvelously organized. And uncharacteristically, I'm going to give some principles, some application points at the end of each chapter. We're not going to wrap it all up at the end. As we hit a chapter, here are some points, and then we'll keep moving forward. So... Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled there, there was a famine in the land. Now that tells us something massive right there. That puts us probably contemporarily, chronologically, about the same time as Gideon in the book of Judges. Even though the book of Ruth comes after Judges, chronologically, Ruth probably happens contemporarily with Gideon. So that's Judges six, seven, and eight. It still fits literarily in this uh, Bethlehem trilogy of how the stories are laid out. They're in Bethlehem. That's in the southern part of Israel in Judea. And there's a famine in the land. Famines don't just happen. This is during the time of the old covenant where God has promised, if you are obedient, if you practice covenant faithfulness, if you worship me as I have prescribed, I will bless you above and beyond all you could imagine. If you don't, there will be scarcity. There will be fear. There will be death. And so the book of Ruth opens up that it's during the time of Judges. There was famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Oh no, this is the third part of the Bethlehem trilogy. It was really bad because we have Micah and Jonathan leaving Bethlehem going to have toxic pagan worship Then we have this guy that brings civil war because of what happens in Bethlehem. And now we have a man from Bethlehem who's gonna take his wife and two sons and they're gonna go to Moab. Moab was the most hated nation among all Israelites. They were their sworn enemies from the very time they crossed out of Egypt. Moab, this nation that starts in the most indistinguished, disgusting way. You might remember the story in Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and Mrs. Lot, we call her Salty, ran away with their two daughters and they're in a cave and the fire and brimstone rains down and Lot and his two daughters, just assume that the whole world's been destroyed and so they take daddy and one daughter produces the nation of Ammon, another daughter produces the nation of Moab. Later on, when Israel's trying to come up out of Egypt, Moab, the king, will not let Israel pass through. And so God curses the people of Moab. For 10 generations, you will not have access to Yahweh's temple. They fought against each other bitterly for generation and generation. Until at one point in the book of Numbers, the king is named Balak. And Balak says, I'm gonna get rid of this Israel once and for all. And he hires a prophet to go and curse Israel. And the prophet shows up. And he stands on a big mountainside looking over a cliff. And he goes, I hereby declare that Yahweh, the God of Israel, make you rich and famous and strong and have lots of wives and children. Whoa, that got weird. And so he went back and told the king, like, I tried to curse him. I did, but I just, just, blessing came pouring out. Guy's like, no problem. Here's more money. Go try it again. So the guy goes back. He says, I hereby decree that the Lord, your God bless you. And he gives him all these amazing blessings. And he goes back He says, I can't curse these people. Every time I try, they just end up getting blessed. But I have an idea. I happen to know that in the nation of Moab, you got some ladies, (laughs) and they're fine. So let's send in a bunch of these Moabite chicks and have them pull the hearts of the Israelite men astray and away and see how that works. Boom, it works. And the men of Israel are all pulled aside, and they descend into dark decayed, corrupt, and corrosive worship of Yahweh because of the defilement from the Moabites. And so when we read in the very first verse that a man and his wife and two sons, because of a famine, are going to leave Bethlehem and they're gonna go to Moab. Well, famine is a very big deal. What are you gonna do? How are you gonna feed your family? One of the undercurrent, one of the subtitles of the entire book of Ruth is God's path. There is a way walk in it. The whole thought and the whole theme and the thrust of the book of Ruth is God's path. Walk in it. So let's pick this up. Ruth chapter one, verse two. The name of the man was Elimelech. You know, Elimelech, Elimelech. No, no, that's what happened. Elimelech. Elimelech. It means my God is king. And he lives in the house of bread, Bethlehem and yet he's leaving. The man's name is Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, or Machlon and Kilion. It's supposed to rhyme, except it might not have actually been their real names. We don't know. Machlon in Hebrew means uh, sicky, pukey, vomitous. I don't know if you name your kid pukey. I mean, that's gross. And Gileon means never satisfied, yearning, wanting, pining. And these are the two names that there's, sa- so that's probably not their actual names. It might have been their nicknames, like Runt Stuff or Dumbhead. I don't know. It's not what we call our two boys. But these are the names. All right, so this is my God is King and lovely and pukey and wanting. And they're going to go to Moab. Now, you can stand in Bethlehem even today. And it's not like what you're thinking. Bethlehem looks more like Wimberley, Texas. It's hilly, it's rocky, it's jagged. It's not super fertile territory, but you can stand in Bethlehem and look to the east and you see Moab. Oh, baby, it is like Kansas and Nebraska with fields, waving fields of amber grain. It looks like that must surely be the way. And so Elimelech takes his family because there's family in the land and they leave God's covenant confines and they head to Moab. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. They didn't just pass through. They set up shop there. But like the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left there with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. Oh, no. Now we're going to be hooked in. Now we're going to put down some Moabite roots. Oh, no. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. We find out that Orpah marries wanting, unsatisfied, Kilion, Orpa can mean the back of the neck. It can mean like a fawn, or it can mean a huge head of hair. I don't know. It seems like a giraffe with an afro. I'm not real sure what Orpa. It's a strange name. It's really hard to decide. And Ruth uh, marries Machlon. Ruth means friend or companion. They lived there about 10 years. Now, the paragraph concludes, both Malan and Killian died so that the woman was left with her two son- without her two sons and without her husband. She is all alone. Naomi is now a Jewish woman in Moab, the enemy of Israel, with two Moabite daughters-in-law. But the chapter will go on. We'll just sort of summarize this. The chapter will go on. Because she's a widow, has no other prospect of feeding herself or taking care of herself, she's destitute, she's desperate, but she hears that the Lord of Israel has visited his people and that there is food there. And she blames God for her calamity. And she uses the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh. He has dealt harshly with me. And so she says... He has failed me. He's brought me out here. He's left me out here. And so she says, it's time to go back. I'm going back to Israel, to Bethlehem. But you two daughters-in-law, y'all stay here. You might know the story. They both scream and cry and wail and they weep. No, no, we'll never, never leave you. We'll never leave you. She says, no, really? Am I going to like get pregnant again and make babies for you to marry? That's super creepy, by the way. If your mother-in-law ever asks you that question, just say, no, no, we're good. We're good. good." Mm -hmm. She's like, "Are mean, you going to wait around for me to like get another husband and get pregnant and make a baby and then grow up and then you marry?" Them? Of course, you're not. So just leave me be. Misery does not want any company. You go back. They say, oh, "We're not going to leave you. We're never going to leave you." Well, finally, she says it for the third time, and Orpah, giraffe afro, says, "I am out of here," and she does go back to Moab. That's all we ever know about her. Ruth, however, whereas Orpah leaves, Ruth cleaves. And we have a conversion statement from Ruth. She says, oh no, I am with you. Where you go, I go. Your God, Yahweh, will be my God. Your people, my people. She says, I am going to become like you are. I am with you no matter what. Naomi says, fine, so be it. I guess, come along. They march back into Bethlehem in Judea, and all the people say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's, it's Naomi, it's Naomi, she's back, and she's brought a friend, oh my gosh, it's Naomi. She says, do not call me Naomi, lovely and pleasant, you call me Mara, for I am bitter, because God has done me wrong. And chapter one closes with this little detail, it was the barley harvest. The barley harvest happens in late March, early April. 50 days later, you have the wheat harvest. That's why it's 50 days Pentecost. Now, so far as we know, never once ever during the time of the judges do they ever practice the feasts of Israel. Not once. It was that bad, that dark, that depraved. Never once do they do the feast. So let me give you three quick points that we can pull from the book of Ruth chapter 1. This whole book that is about God's path, point one goes like this. Stay on God's path, even when there's a sensible detour. Stay on God's path, even when there's a sensible detour. It made sense for Ruth to stay in Moab, or did it? It was actually terrible advice from Naomi. Remember, Ruth was married for 10 years to Pukey, and they never had kids, that would have been viewed as some sort of sentence from the gods or from God. No, it's actually a tender mercy. Remember that in Moab, the firstborn had to be given in sacrifice to the pagan god Molech. So if Ruth and or Orpah had have gone back, gotten a husband, gotten pregnant, had the baby, that baby has to be placed inside of a brass bowl and roasted alive. Just go back, Ruth. It'll be fine. No, it won't. It was terrible advice. Stay on God's path even when there's a sensible detour. Thank God for the tender mercy that are often obscured of unanswered prayers. Do not turn aside to counterfeit redeemers. Point number two, stay on God's path even when it seems to lead nowhere. Naomi didn't have the vision. Neither did Elimelech. They just decided we're going to go to greener pastures. Nope. Stay on God's path even when it seems to lead nowhere. She thought she was going home to an early grave to die in shame and to starvation. We can't always see what lies ahead, but we can and must trust that God's plan is good. Third point, stay on God's path and be mindful of the companions that God sends for your journey. Some of you may remember that great theological work, the Pixar movie Up, where the old man Carl wants nothing more than to get away from Russell. And it is Russell who ends up being his instrument of redemption. Be aware of the strange companion that you would probably never select or pick that God places in your path. And scene. Ruth chapter 2 begins. It's the end of the barley harvest. So that's late March, early April. And we're heading towards the wheat harvest. That'll be the end of April, 50 days later. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. My translation says he was a worthy man. Well, it's two words, and there's not a good English translation. This guy Boaz, who was a relative of her husband, Elimelech, this guy Boaz, he is Giborchail. He's like a stud. This guy is totally awesome. He's noble. He has dignity. He has reputation, renown, and integrity. He has resources. He has means. He is well known in the community as that's the man. And then the chapter does something a little bit strange and unexpected to drive the point home. He's described in a way that nobody else has ever described in your Old Testament. He walks through his fields, and he says this, Yahweh be with you. And all of his men respond, and Yahweh be with you. That's random. Why is that in there? Because the text is trying to tell us that this guy's awesome. He's enviable. People want to be near him. He's the man. The Gabor Chayil is the hero. He is the guy who you think, I wish I was more like that. The things that guy says, the way he has conversations, the way he treats people, the way his mind works. Gosh, I wish I was more like that guy. That's Gabor Cha'il. This is the man named Boaz. Now, the story continues on. Ruth, as they're sitting in this abandoned home, tells Naomi, hey, Um, starving is not my favorite, so I'm going to go out into the pauper's fields, and I'm going to graze, and I'm going to try to glean some, some grain for us. And Naomi goes, yeah, okay, whatever, I don't care. Second piece of terrible advice. May I remind you, Moab is hated. If Ruth goes out unprotected, she's just inviting all kinds of abuse. And by the way, do you remember what happened to the dude's concubine at the end of Judges in Bethlehem? Not good. And so Ruth says, I've got to go get us some food. I'm going to go glean in the corners because she knew enough that in Leviticus it says, do not glean the corners of your fields so that the poor can come and glean. And sure enough, she goes out and there's a bunch of young girls who are gleaning the corners of the field and she starts joining in and Boaz walks through saying, Yahweh be with you and Yahweh be with you. And he says, hmm, I see her, she's new. Hey, Dave, Dave was the foreman, all foremen are named Dave. I don't know why it's in the Bible, Dave. Who is that? And Dave said, and that's not really his name. The foreman says, oh, that's uh, the Moabitess. She came with Ruth and she came up to us and said, hey, can I glean here? And we said, yeah, sure, it's the law. Go for it. Mm. And Boaz goes, hey, don't lay a finger on her. Let her glean the grain with the rest of the girls and don't lay a finger on her. He has to tell him twice. How come? Because he knew that she was imperable. She was a Moabitess. So he calls her over and says, listen, we're going to take care of you. Glean all the grain that you want. When you get thirsty, go and get water from the same vessels that the rest of the girls do. Nothing is going to happen to you. We're going to protect you here. So let's pick up now in chapter 2, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. What humility, this Moabitess in front of this man who has power. And you're already beginning to wonder. wait a minute, we've already had the first two prongs of the Bethlehem trilogy. Is this guy the last good guy in Israel? Is he going to turn out to be a dirtbag loser? What's going to happen? And so she bows down. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a, underline that word, foreigner? Incomplete translation. More on that in a moment. Why should you take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord. Watch this, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You didn't even know it, young lady. But you have come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. Under the wings is this word, kanaf. Now Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, hundreds of years later, will prophesy about the coming of Messiah, the one who will come out of heaven, who will rule and who will be on the earth, and he will have healing in his wings. Wings is another term for the hem of your garment, the wings of your robe which is why when we go into Luke chapter 8 and we find Jesus, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, lowborn, walking the streets of Capernaum, and he's being tracked by a woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And the text is very careful to tell us that she reaches up and she touches his kanaf, his wing of his garment, because he is the one. What Luke says has happened and is happening was prophesied by Malachi, And way back, hundreds of years, even before that, Boaz says, you have come to find shelter under the wing of the Lord God of Israel. Keep that image in mind. That is super, super central. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Wow. Chapter's gonna go on. He's going to say, hold up your apron And he's going to pour a bunch of grain into her apron and send her home. It just so happens that Boaz loads her down with an ephah of barley, to which all the ladies in the house go, ooh, yeah. Nothing quite so romantic as an ephah of barley. Christmas is coming, boys. Trust me on this. An ephah of barley is 30 pounds. But wait, I'm not done. He just keeps pouring the grain. And she's like, I got me a man. What's going on? As I remind you, no feasts of Israel ever happened during the time of the judges. They just didn't do it. But an ephah was a very specific number. It was the precise amount of barley that you were to provide at the feast of Pentecost as a wave offering to the community. It's sending a signal to Naomi. Hey, Naomi, Boaz is saying, I'm good. I've got this. I am providing a wave offering of 30 pounds of barley. God's doing something, Naomi. Do you get this? You've been asking, you've been wondering, is God really in this? Has God forsaken me? No, no, Naomi, Boaz is telling her. I'm sending a wave offering for the upcoming feast of Pentecost. Naomi wasn't ever really super concerned about Ruth's well-being, sent her out what we learn from chapter two is a very important point, and it goes like this. Trust God with everything you've got. Every single bit, cell of your mind, body, heart, soul, relationships, thoughts, words, deeds. You trust God with everything you've got. It means every question that arises in your life can be met and answered with the recognition that God is good and sovereign, and he really has supplied all that you need. You do not have to grasp or scheme but Naomi will continue to do so. Just that life lesson alone would guide us away from so much of the allure of sin. Well, scene chapter three. Chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Hey, Ruth, let me help you out. Translation I still have no promise, no hope, no, no expectation of anything good in the future. So let's put you to work again, because that worked out pretty good for me last time. Naomi's a schemer. She wasn't trusting God with everything she had just yet. Verse 2 Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Oh, my gosh. Naomi's telling Ruth, go get cleaned up, which was not a particularly persistent practice in antiquity, but now go wash yourself. And she says, and anoint yourself. Uh, It's not just anoint. It's not just... It is completely immerse yourself in oil. Whether it was essential or not, we're not told. A little bit of tea leaf, a little bit of lavender, a little bit of peppermint, you know, you... you Completely slather yourself in oil. This is opulent. This is garish. It is very, very forward. It is not subtle. Anoint yourself and put on your cloak. Eh, Wrong word. Simnach. Put on your wedding dress. How humiliating. Make yourself, Ruth, available make yourself vulnerable, garish, forward, very clear, and not so subtle. Put on your wedding dress. It's the, dre- <laughs> it's the dress she would have been married to Melon in, and all the people would have known. They'd have been there, and Boaz would have known. And go down. And go down into the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Go down slathered in oil, with your wedding dress on, and then hide behind some grain because that's dignified. God, oh, this Naomi. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go in and cover his feet. <laughs> that's weird. Lots have been made here. What does this mean? Does this mean what I think it doesn't mean? It's literally a type of proposal to literally uncover the feet. That's That means. That's what's going to happen, and uncover his feet. And lie down and he will tell you what to do. And so she does. Naomi is not ashamed, but this girl is afraid. The text tells us that she goes at night. Anytime the Hebrew tells you that it's at night, it means it's dangerous. It's probably evil. It's probably not correct. But this says something further. It says, she has to go in the night of the night. May I remind you what happened to the Benjamite concubine in the city of Bethlehem in the book of Judges? And she has to go slathered in oil. Wearing her wedding dress in the night of the night, humiliated and afraid and trusting that this God whom she has not known will look after her. Verse six, so she went down to the threshing floor and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, (laughs) let me give you the new Eric translation, when Boaz was pickled, all right? Because this is the end of the barley harvest. These boys have been working hard. Harvesting barley is hard work. And so they celebrate together and they do toast and they just keep drinking and they keep and then it's time to go take a nap. Well, where do you sleep when you've had a hard day work? At the end of the grain. Because you, you don't even go, but you he's gone. All right. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. <laughs> That is a forward thing to do. Now, it's an appropriate gesture, but the time and the place was completely wrong. She would have been the instigator and the initiator because she's the widow approaching a kinsman redeemer. That's the appropriate gesture. The time and the place, horribly inappropriate. Then listen, Ruth chapter three, verse eight, one of the funniest verses in all of your Bible, okay? Ruth chapter three, verse eight says, at midnight, that's at the night of the night, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. You been there? Don't say yes. Nobody said yes. No, 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 no. That was a trap, Joe. Don't say yes. <laughs> no, this is clearly like not normative. All right? He wakes up and there's a just in a wedding dress. What's in there? I mean, you can't imagine how bizarre this is, right? He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth. Your servant. And then it's not funny. Then it's gospel. And it's gospel. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. Why? Spread your wings over your servant. Why? You're the redeemer. Do you remember what he said to her? You've come to Israel and the Lord wants to place his wing over you. And she says, you're the one to do it. Do you see your Ruth story? God wants you under his kanaf, under his wing. But you and I have to come to his redeemer and say, you have to place your wing over me or I have no shot, I have no entrance. It's a beautiful thing. This gospel, God wants you under his protective love and and closeness and proximity and, and intimacy. And she says, I know, but you're the redeemer. You are gonna have to do it. Watch what he says. And he said, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, he says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. (laughs) Oh, keep that little expression underlined. Verse 12, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. A couple of things we can learn. One is that there are no shortcuts on the path. That's the principle from Act 3 or Scene 3 or Chapter 3. There are no shortcuts on the path. Naomi was trying to work a system, get a quick, quick hit. Let's just get this done. Let's take care of business by any means necessary. No, there are no shortcuts on the path. Boaz resists temptation. Can I remind you? He's Gibor Ha'il. He's the hero of Bethlehem. He's the man. He's the mayor. He's got all strength, means, resources. It's the night of night. He's already been drinking. He's tired. He deserves or all the different ways that you and I might try to rationalize and justify it. But he had decided in advance who he was, whose he was, and whom he was for. There are no shortcuts on the path. God provided a redeemer. And right there is the hinge, the break, the fracture, the surprising grace of the Bethlehem Trilogy. These two who left Bethlehem to have pagan worship, this woman who is cut into pieces and starts a civil war, this man's gonna take advantage of but No, he says, there is a redeemer. I'm gonna take care of everything, but you have to wait and you have to trust me. He'll do what he has to do for her, no matter the cost of his own estate or his reputation or effort, he will do it the right way. Stay here, nothing's going to happen to you. I'm not going to harm you or touch you. Scene chapter four. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate, New Day, and sat down there. That's where all the business of the elders would take place. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom the Goel, the other person who was actually closer in family line, um, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. It's interesting. It's not really the word friend. He says, Hey, you. What's his face? Come here. In Hebrew, paloni almoni. It's, hey, what's your, what's your face? You with the, with the face and the hair. Come here, sit down. He's the only guy in the book of Ruth that's not named. We even name pukey and wanting. We don't name this guy. It's really fascinating because he's a nobody. Do you see? He's actually closer. It means so and so. What's his face? Now, he had been in Israel the entire time of the famine, just like Boaz. He obviously has resources. He has means. He has all kinds of reputation and clout because Boaz knew of him. He says, here's the deal. You've heard that Naomi is back. She is. And you know what? Naomi wants to sell her land because she's got to find some way of sustaining her life. You're the closest one. Do you want to buy the land? And the guy says, well, more land equals more resources, equals more wealth, equals more reputation and renown. Yes, I'm in. I'll do it. And Boaz goes, great. I knew you would. Oh, uh, uh, one more thing. (laughs) Did did I forget to? Oh, see, the thing is, uh, it comes with a Moabitess, (laughs) and you've got to marry her. And the guy's going, wait a second, there's land, but it comes with a Moabitess, the hated nation that we revile from Israel. And I've got a marrier, And so all of my resources now now be shared through a line of a Moabitess. No, thank you. I'm out. I'm not going to do it. And Boaz says, mm, okay. And the other guy, what's his face says, hey, Boaz, uh, 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 you should do it. Yeah. Boaz says, thank you very much. I believe I will. And at a discount, thank you very much. So the custom of the day, Samuel writes this, I believe, tells us that the other redeemer would take off of his sandal and he would hand it to Boaz to say, I'm transferring my right to the place where that sandal would sit, the land. I'm giving you my sandal, transferring my right. It's yours. Now, when that happened, the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy tell us that Naomi would have been well in her rights to walk up to what's his face and spit in his face because he didn't redeem her as he was commanded. Now, we have no record that that actually happens, but she would have been able to. That nameless dude had been in Israel during the time of the Lord's visit when prosperity and plenty had abounded and yet he didn't do the right thing that was expected of him. So what's the point early on? It goes like this. A changed man can change his world but a better world does not make a better man. We work so hard culturally, communally, Nationally, to try to involve ourselves in improving our environment or our education or our economy or our infrastructure. Good, we should. Doesn't change a single human heart ever. But Boaz was a changed man, and he changed his world. Better circumstances and context and environments don't change people. God does that. Well, let me speed up here. Verse 11 and 12. Then all the people are at the gate, and the elders said, We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like, are you kidding me, the Moabitess? May the Lord make this woman Ruth, the Moabitess, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of, (laughs) what? Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And we have some dots connected all the way back to Tamar. May the Lord do for you, Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth. Well, we know that the story continues on. Ruth and Boaz are able to conceive and they name the child Obed. And the child is laid in the lap of Naomi. Naomi. And Naomi is redemptively recreated. Her body gives life. She becomes the wet nurse for her grandson. God's ways are so surprising. His grace is so surprising. And all the women say to her, this Ruth, this Moabitess is better for you than seven sons of Israel. See, the Lord Jesus comes into our mess, but he also comes from our mess and does amazing, amazing things. Well, let me finish off scene four here. Verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashom. Nashom fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. I think Boaz was taught by his mother, Rahab, how to have care and concern for the foreigner that would come in. Now, I want to remind you that all of these women demonstrate the different aspects of the coming of Christ at first Advent, that he would be Messiah, conqueror, redeemer, king, and son. And yet, there's actually so much more to this. In Ruth chapter 2, in verse 1, we're told that Boaz is gibor chayil, that he is the hero, he is the man, and that he is goel, he is the one that can redeem. He has wealth, he has stature, means, and nobility. But you might remember that Ruth, in chapter 2, verse 10, says, why are you showing me this kindness? I am nothing but nochria." Now, here's an interesting little side note. You may know this, you may not know this. In our Bible, the... Books of the Old Testament are laid out, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then on into the history narratives. But not in Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew canon of Scripture, they saw fit thousands of years ago as they arranged the books of the Hebrew Bible. It goes like this, Joshua, Judges, Proverbs, Ruth. Even though it's not chronological, they understood that the wisdom literature of Solomon, which comes a 1,000 years later, was going to be inserted there. Why? Because Proverbs has a master thing. The one master of Proverbs is wisdom is fear of the Lord. We get that all the time. That's the refrain all the way throughout. But the second one, all throughout the book of Proverbs, is beware the adulterous woman. Beware the foreigner. Beware the adulterous woman. She will snare your soul. She will hook your heart. She will pervert your mind. Beware the adulterous woman. And that word that Proverbs will use again and again and again is nocria. Beware the nocria. It's in Proverbs 6. It's in Proverbs 7. On and on and on. Beware the Nokria. Which is why when Ruth comes to Boaz, and says, why would you do this for me? For I am nocria. The very one that Proverbs, it comes just before Ruth in Hebrew Bible, the very one that says, beware the Nokria. Ruth says, why would you do this for me? A nochria?" Now, there's another passage in Proverbs that most of us guys read, usually after the first 10 days in May. Proverbs 31. And we go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that passage? What was that passage? Yeah, the Proverbs 31 woman. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in Proverbs 31, the ideal woman is said to be chayil. When Boaz says, I will put my wing over you, you are not no You are Chayil. Because the Redeemer says so. So our final point goes like this <laughs> What your Redeemer says about you supersedes your history. It's Christmas. It's the greatest gift I can give to any and all and each of us. What your Redeemer says about you supersedes your history. Was she no Kriya? A foreigner? Moabitess? Damaged goods? Absolutely. And when Boaz calls her Chayil, worthy, noble, dignified, worthy, that becomes true. I'm not saying that you and I don't have wreckage in our past, I'm sure we do. But Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, declares us His. Are there consequences for our sin? Absolutely. Might we still be working through some of those things? Of course. But don't ever forget whose and who you are. Your Redeemer declares you worthy. And that is truth. We all need to hear at Christmas. Surprising grace. Sin is no match. For God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful narrative, lengthy passage in your word. Pray, God, that you would continue to work it into our hearts, souls, minds, bodies, and relationships. And if there is someone here who essentially is known as what's-his-face or so-and-so, would you name them? Would you lead them and invite them out of darkness into light, out of death into life? Would you compel them? to seek protection under the God of Israel, that they would be drawn to the Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that we are not living merely according to the wreckage of our past, but according to the identity that your son Jesus has blood bought for us. And may that be transformative in each of our lives, our marriages, our homes, our parental, our child relationships, our sibling relationships, our friend relationships, our church relationships, our community relationships. Father, would you continue to bring transformation to this house? We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.